and welcome to Radio Drama Revival, the show dedicated to stories told in the medium of sound, showcase the diversity and vitality of modern audio theater. Hear your news, reviews, discussion, and of course stories. I'm your host Fred, and that great theme music is by Roger Gregg of Crazy Dog Audio Theater. And it is Halloween Day, the day this podcast is going up, and we are going back to the vaults for today's show. Um, there is plenty of new, interesting uh, audio horror drama coming out there. We heard some of my own work with Strange Bedfellows. Uh, if you're part of the Audio Drama Lovers group on Facebook, and you really should be, uh, there's been some great postings there. Campfire Radio Theater has new stuff, as well as many others. Um, also, I've uh, Matthew Boudreau, good colleague, uh, mentioned Midnight Radio Theater, a group I have not heard of, but um, I take his recommendation as well as my own. So uh, check out that uh, Audio Drama Lovers on Facebook for some more suggestions. Um, what we got for you today, this is by the Cape Cod Radio Mystery Theater, of course, in Cape Cod, Massachusetts, uh, not too far from where I'm based. Um, I say from the vaults, I'm not sure exactly how long Cape Cod's been around. I'm guessing at least since the 80s. It sounds like it's produced around that time frame. Um, it is a lovely classic New England ghost story. Uh, traveler uh, lost in the night, grabbed by some near-do-wells, and put on a buoy. Uh, and that's really the framework, sort of a Edgar Allan Poe-style uh, pit in the pendulum set in the briny waters of the brisk Atlantic. So I will get right into it. It's an hour long. It's a fantastic little tale of terror um, to delight you here for Halloween. Um, plenty more out there. Dig in the Radio Drum Revival archives, or again, uh, Audio Drum Lovers Group on Facebook is a great place to find more stuff. Um, of course, our Kickstarter is still going. Uh, Kickstarter, search for the Save Radio Drama Revival campaign. Uh, we have met our sort of minimum goals, but we're hoping to raise some more funds to support a uh, new production contest in the new year. Um, so... Here we go. The buoy. It's a foggy night on old Cape Cod. A perfect night for a mystery. Tonight, Cape Cod Radio Mystery Theater presents a story of terror and suspense in a soundscape mystery thriller entitled The Buoy. with me now. I want to show you something. We're heading in, leaving Vineyard Sound behind us. Notice the foghorn. That'll be Nobska Point, somewhere over there on our right. Impossible to tell where it is exactly, but if you keep your eyes looking in that direction, you'll notice every now and then that the fog glows a little brighter each time the light in the lighthouse sweeps round. We're looking for something that should be coming up on our left. We're looking for a marker, a ledge, and a rock called Coffin Rock that more or less marks the entrance to the passage. Listen for a bell on our left, and further over there somewhere, a gong. Listen hard now. We'll see is this flat. There won't be much wave action to set them ringing. There's the bell buoy. More ahead of us than I thought. Slight correction in our course, and we should steer just to the right of her. There she goes. Our wake woke her up a bit. There's a gong, too, you hear? That's good. 
When you're navigating through a fog like this, it's always a great comfort to know that you know where you are. Now, keep our eye on the compass and follow a heading of exactly 300 degrees. It should take us directly into the mouth of the passage. This first part of the passage is called Broadway. Misnomer, like so many other names associated with the sea. Running down a line of buoys now. Over there to the right of us is Woods Hole. Now, if we were to shave about 30 degrees off our present course, that would head us directly into Great Harbor. Over on the port side is Nanamesic, the first of the chain called the Elizabeth Islands that lie off the mainland, like paint that dribbled off the artist's brush. After Nanamesic comes Okatina, then Noshan, the biggest, then Pask, then Nashawina, and last of all, Cuttyhunk. Without this passage here, you'd have to go around all six of them if you wanted to make it into Buzzards Bay. Let me tell you what's up ahead, because we're not planning to go all the way through. Dead ahead of us is Penzance Point, and a little island called Devil's Foot Island. It's there that the passage makes an abrupt swing to the left into a section of the channel known as the Strait. Off the foot of Devil's Foot Island is a buoy which has the rather prosaic name of buoy number three. Now, this is exactly the halfway point through the passage. Once you're in the strait, continue on for another 400 yards and then swing north at buoy number six, and it will lead you straight out into Buzzard Bay. Do that, and you will have successfully navigated the Woods Hole Passage. We're slowing down now. Coming up on buoy number three, the one that I mentioned. Well, we've got a pocket of clear air ahead of us, which is good for what I want to show you. I'm going to shut the engine down altogether. And we'll hang back, be quiet, watch to see what happens. You see the buoy up ahead of us? Tall, black against the fog. But if you put a light on her, you'd see she's painted green. Bright green. Listen. Do you hear it? There's a boat coming this way. A work boat for sure, too small to be a trawler. Most likely a lobster boat. There. Now you can see it. Coming out of the fog. Cutting across the rolling calm of the dark water. She's heading for the buoy. There's a man at the bow with a line. Another at the wheelhouse. The third one standing up at the stern. The man at the wheel slips her into neutral. She glides the last 30 feet. The man at the bow slips a loop over the buoy as the boat slides past. The man at the stern does the same thing. They're working quietly now. Not a word spoken between them. The man at the bow moves back to help the others. They're lifting something out of the hold. Something heavy. Something moving. From this distance, it's hard to tell. It might be a fish, a large animal, a dolphin perhaps anxious to be released. No, it's not that. Something else? Something arching, twisting its body like the contortions of a caterpillar inside a cocoon. One man's having trouble keeping hold of his end. He drops it. 
drops it again. Now they've set the thing back down. The man who is at the wheelhouse has something in his hand. He raises it above his head and brings it down sharply. He looks the thing once more. This time there's no movement. No movement at all. Except for the slight row and pitch of the boat and the approving nod of the buoy as the men get on with their work. Looking for a room for the night. I was hoping you might have one. Just for yourself? That's right. Well, we're practically full up. But if you want to wait, I'll make you up one of our spare rooms. Would you? Oh, that would be great. You can just sign the register. Thank you. Missed the ferry, did you? Mm, only by a little. <laughs> a little's the same as a lot. You're not the first, and you won't be the last. Mr. Mr. Halpole. Now, if you have a car, you can move it round to the back. No, I took a cab. The bus was a little late getting in, and the taxi couldn't make up mm -hmm. for it. Well, as I say, you're not the first, and you won't be the last. If you'd like to go in and warm yourself by the fire, I'll go and see to your room. Thanks. Help yourself to some brandy if you want it. It's in a bottle on the mantelpiece. Thank you. Thank you very much. Fire sure looks inviting. Do you mind if I join you? What? I said, do you mind if I join you by the fire? Join me? You want to join me? No, I, I don't mind. Oh. oh, it's a bit raw out there this evening. It's good to be in by a warm fire. Personally, I'd hate to be stuck out there without a place to spend... <coughs> My God! Are you all right? Cold. Oh, let me get you something. Do you need a doctor? Cold. Uh, I'll Cold. call a doctor. No, no. No, don't call. Oh, are you sure? It, it, it's all right. Would you like some brandy? Would that help? Yes, yes, brandy. Brandy, please. I'll join you if you don't mind. Here you are. Thank you. I really must apologize for my outburst, Mr. Halpole. Mr. Halpole. You see, I'm, I'm really not ill. It's just that I... I thought I was over something, and I i guess I'm a little chagrined to discover I'm not as over it as I thought. The fire does feel good, doesn't it? This is something that happened to you? Yes. Would you care to talk about it? I don't mean to pry. It's just that my profession has me convinced that it usually helps to talk. And what is your profession? I'm a counselor. A marriage counselor, actually even though I've never been married. But then, lack of direct experience doesn't stop most of us from offering our advice on a subject. Just look around you and you see that's true. Yes, I suppose you're right. I... I'm really a good listener, Mr... Walcott. My name is Edward Walcott. 
Yes, I, I suppose you're right, Mr. Halpole. I, I suppose it would help me to talk about it. I had thought I was so past it all. After all, 18 and one-half years is a long time, particularly when you've spent 10 years of it in therapy. Tonight was to be a personal test, a chance to prove to myself that I had finally come to accept what happened to me. The truth is, Mr. Halpole, the body may survive, but it can take much longer for the soul, the spirit, the psyche, call it what you will, to recover. Tell me, are you familiar with the term syzygy? The syzygy? No, I don't S -Y -Z -Y -G -Y. think so. S-Y-Z-Y-G-Y. Syzygy. It's a term in astronomy that refers to the alignment of the Earth, the Moon, and the Sun. It's a fairly common occurrence. It happens twice a month whenever there is a full moon or a new moon. But true syzygy is something else, and much less common. It happens only when the alignment is perfect. That would be during a lunar eclipse, Very good, it? Mr. Halpole. That's exactly right. The Earth casts its shadow upon the moon because there is a direct line between the sun, the Earth, and the moon. But even then, true syzygy is only true depending on where you are on the Earth. Do, do you understand why? Uh, I'm not sure. It's because the Earth is very large, you see, and also because the moon travels around the Earth on a tilt, an elliptic, it's called. As the moon orbits around the Earth, sometimes it passes south of the equator, sometimes it sits right on the equator, and sometimes it passes north. For true syzygy to occur in the northern hemisphere in approximately the place we are now, then the alignment must take place while the moon is traveling north of the equator. And that occurrence is quite rare. In fact, the last time it occurred was October 29th, 18 and one-half years ago. I recall myself standing on the public pier in my rain poncho, with my suitcase beside me, watching the last of the big ships of the Steamship Authority making its majestic departure from the harbor. I stood there in the damp drizzle of things, thinking that I had been foolish to make my plans on the basis of a schedule that was two years out of date. There's always a kind of lost feeling that comes when you miss a boat, a sense of missed opportunities, I suppose. I felt in a strange way stranded, although why I should feel this way was puzzling since I was, after all, still standing on the mainland. Certainly the ferryboat showed no apparent remorse for leaving me behind as it jugged its way out of the harbor. Visible now in the fog, gave one last taunting blast upon its horn, and I decided there were only two things left for me to do. Find a hot meal, then acquire a warm bed for the evening, preferably one not too far from where I would have to catch the ferry come morning. Woods Hole in the off-season is an out-of-the-way place, and there was not much to choose from. 
I wandered past one or two beer joints that were mostly deserted and where I imagined that ordering a hot meal would be taking a definite gastronomic risk. I went around the corner to where that little channel cuts through into Eel Pond, and there I chose a small cafe that sits right alongside the drawbridge. The air inside was humid, and the windows were steamed, owing both to the atmospheric conditions and the heat coming out of the kitchen. I ordered coffee and a bowl of chili. My waitress was friendly enough, but she became guarded when I asked her about a place to spend the night. Did she think I was hoping she might offer me her own place? Perhaps she was right to think so, because perhaps a part of me was lonely and hoping she would. I finished my meal and decided to walk just a bit before heading the half mile up the road to the motel she recommended. The drizzle had stopped. The fog was beginning to move around in a light wind. I looked down at the fresh mat of yellow maple leaves that showed up so brilliantly under the street lamps. I even remember stopping and watching a few of them float down the rivulet of water that ran down the gutter to the storm sewer. My feeling was melancholy. I passed the fisherman's dock and noticed two fishermen standing close together, smoking cigarettes. They dropped them in the water as I approached and went back to their work, which appeared to be repairing something on the dock. I turned around at this point and headed for the motel because I suddenly had the idea that I might not be able to get a room. <laughs> which was silly, of course, and I realized it immediately as I looked around and reminded myself of how deserted this town was at this season of the year. Of course, I had no difficulty whatsoever getting a room. I was giving the end room off a motor court, and I settled down pretty much immediately to read in bed until I fell asleep. I fell asleep with the light on. Then I remember, sometime later, waking up enough to reach over and switch it off. Then, I'm not sure how much time passed... I remember waking up to a sound that was gone by the time I was fully awake. I lay in the room and listened. I heard a car or two go by. I listened to the ticking of the clock. I heard voices coming from outside the door. There was something about them that was menacing, like burglars in the night. I should have acted right then. I didn't. Instead, I allowed the chain on the door and the warmth of my bed covers to lull me into a false sense of security, to convince me that all I really needed to do was to lie there and listen. I sat up on my elbows. They burst in upon me. What's going on? I was thrust what, down upon the bed this? before I could get free of the what covers. What are you doing? Wait! Wait! Help! Help! All of my reactions were too slow. Every one of them. memory is unclear on what happened next. I feel fairly certain that I must have been taken somewhere in the trunk of a car. Vaguely, I remember the ride out in the lobster boat. I don't believe I came fully awake again until I felt myself being hoisted in the arms of two of them. I saw the dark water over the side of the boat, and I thought for certain I was about to be thrown overboard. I struggled. 
I did my best to prevent them, but they overpowered me once again. Anyway, as it turned out, that wasn't what they had in mind at all. When I regained consciousness a second time, I found myself floating out in the water strapped to a buoy. My body had been placed inside a large burlap sack which was drawn up around my neck. My weight was resting on the narrow lip of the buoy on which I was just barely able to set my heels. There were numerous straps holding me across my chest, my abdomen, my thighs, and my ankles. In addition, there were several ropes tied in such a way to prevent me from wriggling either upwards or downwards to slip free. My mouth was securely taped as it had been since the motel room. The only parts of me that I could move with any freedom were my hands, moving only from the wrists and my head, which I could swivel from side to side. My first realization as I looked around somewhat frantically was that I was alone out here. Turning my head as far as I could and peering out into the limits of the fog, I saw no one around me. Neither did I hear any sounds that would indicate someone was close by. I tried calling to no avail. I struggled against my restraints but quickly realized how useless that would be. It was obvious I had been brought out here and left. That was the inescapable conclusion. But why? For what reason? And who would want to play such a horrible practical joke? Roughly handled, I had been seized in my sleep, taken out and strapped to a buoy. Obviously, it was no one I knew or could have known, as there was no doubt of my being a complete stranger in town. And yet, clearly, someone expected me to spend a very uncomfortable night bobbing around on a buoy, and I had not the slightest comprehension of why. Was it to teach me a lesson? In my mind, I retraced the entire evening and re-examined every face I had seen. It seemed there were only two possibilities. The first having to do with the waitress in the restaurant. Had I offended her more than I thought? Or was it more likely that a jealous boyfriend had been sitting at another table and had misinterpreted what he saw? Was I a case of mistaken identity? Or did he, out of his own jealous paranoia suspect me to be some secret lover with whom his girlfriend had been carrying on a clandestine relationship? Or was it the incident on the dock? The two men I had seen hurry back to work as I approached. Did my observing them make them think I had seen something? Something I shouldn't? And did they decide to do this to me as a warning? To throw a scare into me? To, to teach me not to poke my nose into other people's business? The fact that I had been brought out here in a lobster boat suggested this choice was correct. Although it was also possible that the jealous boyfriend, if there was one, was a local fisherman who, who are known to have hot and fiery tempers. The encircling fog made me feel lost and disoriented as though I were very far out to sea. And yet, the sounds that reached my ears, the faint surf, the foghorn, the church bells, which I recognized, told me that I must still be relatively close to shore. I tried to assess the danger I was in. Unless someone came back to cause me further harm, I seemed destined to spend the night riding this buoy, coping with the cold until someone else, most likely in the light of day, came by and spotted me. 
I knew a little about buoys. I was aware that they come in different sizes and shapes. Some with flashing lights, some with bells that ring, and some with metal rods that clang with every action of the waves. The buoy I was riding on had no lights or bells. It was a plain enclosed cylinder, like an oil drum, and it seemed to be quite large. I estimated its length to be at least 14 feet above water. It never occurred to me to ask myself why it was necessary to use such a large buoy so close into land. Time passed, perhaps no more than ten minutes. I listened to the foghorn and stared down at the shiny black water. Looking up, I noticed that here and there in places overhead, the fog was beginning to break open and allow small patches of stars to poke through. I heard the groan of the anchor chain beneath me. Something mm. sluggish, a faint tremor. Not, nothing more. We drifted. Then, once more. Something stirring. Something waking up. I listened. It was quiet. Followed by... The effect of these sounds was quite damaging upon my nerves, upon my reason. When I began to think clearly again... I realized that nothing had changed. Nothing. Except for one thing. Where before the result of my weight hanging off one side of the buoy had had little effect in causing us to lean to one side, I now looked down and noticed. For the first time, I noticed that my toes were underwater. I looked down at the surface of the water more carefully, and where before I had seen nothing but a flaccid calm like a mill pond, I could now detect a definite dimpling to the surface. The water was moving. Through my back, I could feel a slight shiver of vibration running up the chain, being amplified by the air inside the chamber of the buoy and making itself felt all up and down my spine. A current was running, which meant the tide was turning. That was all nothing to be nervous about. I looked about me and noticed that everywhere the fog was breaking up, disintegrating, opening up gaps along the waterline so that in places I could see all the way to shore. As it continued, it was like the rising of a curtain. But suddenly I could see where I was. 
I could see I was much closer in than I realized. I could actually make out a dark shoreline encroaching on both sides. There appeared to be a, an open stretch of water directly in front. Or was, was it only an inlet? Difficult to tell. The land on both sides seemed to meet in the middle. And yet the water swirling past my feet was flowing in that direction. Flowing as if there must be a way out. Then I realized what it was. A channel. That was it. It had to be. This was a channel. And the buoy I was riding on was put there to mark the passage. The tide was going out. That was all. I made this simple observation and then put it out of my mind. Instead, I, I concentrated on the fact that the fog was lifting. Already, I could see lights from the town reflected across the water. I could see more and more stars up above. The constellations. The Big Dipper standing on its handle in the north. The Pleiades and Cassiopeia overhead. I looked around at all I could see. And I felt better. I felt comforted. Seeing was so much better than being lost in the fog. And not only seeing, but being seen. For now I believe that my chances of being found and rescued were greatly increased. Time passed. Fifteen minutes. Twenty minutes. I gritted my teeth against the cold and felt determined to ride out this miserable night. Still, I failed to comprehend my predicament. I believed that whatever danger I faced lay above the surface. I had not yet come to realize that the real danger lay below. Not until another groan of the anchor chain brought me around to the fact that several things had changed. The movement and turbulence of the water was now much more apparent. The dimpling on the surface had become a definite ripple all around, and the dark water welling up in the backwash behind the buoy showed me something of the currents down below. The buoy itself had begun to move with the current, side to side swaying like the motion of a snake, coupled with an up and down movement like a hobby horse. There was more strain upon the chain. I could feel that. But as more the angle at which we were leaning had increased, and the water, which had only once covered my toes, was now reaching above my shins. For the first time that night, I went a little wild with terror. I struggled like a madman against the ropes. I hurt myself trying to loosen them. But when my strength gave out and I collapsed in exhaustion, I could feel they were not one fraction looser than before. In the calm following my panic, I began to think more clearly. I began to face up to the situation I was in. The current was dragging the buoy under. That much was obvious. The question was, how far would it go? <laughs> it almost sounded like the sort of question you'd expect to encounter on a high school science test. And so I tried to think back. I tried to remember everything I had ever learned about the tides. I was aware, basically, that the tide changes direction every six hours, which meant that at some time during the next six hours, or five, I suppose it must be now, 
The current in the channel would reach its maximum velocity. How much of my body remained above water when that critical moment was reached was a question I found myself keenly contemplating. I peered down at the moving water and tried to judge its speed. Perhaps a knot. No more than a knot and a half. I knew that one half knot was what one would expect to encounter in the open ocean, away from any land masses that would tend to compress it and thereby increase its speed. One and one half knots was already a considerable current, which suggested that the currents in this channel might be very strong indeed. The buoy itself was also a clue. It was enormous, as I mentioned. Three or four feet of its length still towered above my head. How much of it would remain above water before the current finally slackened, and the buoy, with me upon it, was released from the grip of these rushing waters. It all depended on the tide. The tide was the key. And the higher the tide, the stronger the current. It made sense because whatever water flowed in would have to flow out again when the tide changed directions. And a higher tide meant there would be that much more water to flow out again in the same amount of time. Thereby producing a stronger current. But what determined the tides? The moon, of course. The gravitational pull of the moon. I remember that much from high school science. The phases of the moon. Didn't they have something to do with it? The new moon and the full moon? Didn't they say the tides were highest during the new moon and full moon? But where was the moon? I searched the sky. I looked in every direction I could see, but no moon of any phase was visible. That was good, I told myself. At least that was one positive thing about this whole ordeal. Shot jolt startled me. I suppose it must be the chain working out one of its kinks. The result was that the water was now reaching to the tops of my kneecaps. I was terrified now. Completely and utterly terrified. And then... And then my eyes happened to notice something in the eastern sky. Something low upon the horizon. The moon was coming up. I watched in horror as a great three-dimensional full moon, the color of orange, rose above the rim of the world and inclined its bald head toward me as if it were about to point out a birthmark. I began to laugh. An hysterical laughter that rose with the moon and carried away my reason. At that moment, I was no more sane than the craziest man alive. Guesses I had made about the moon and effect on the tides were quite correct, but also quite limited. For example, I was not aware of the phenomenon called syzygy, nor was I aware of another celestial event that was taking place, which was to play a significant role before the night was through. The moon was entering into perigee. Do you know what that means, Mr. Halpole? Well, I'm not sure. It, it has something to do with the orbit, doesn't it? The moon enters into perigee when it passes through that part of its orbit that brings it closest to the Earth. 
31,000 miles closer, which means 31,000 miles of additional gravitational pull. The moon is the main culprit, you see. Normally, the moon's gravitational pull is more than double the strength of the sun for the simple reason that although the sun is much larger, it is also much further away. During times of perigee, however, the effect of the moon is magnified by a third. In other words, in terms of ocean tides, what would normally have been a three-foot tide becomes a four-foot tide. Do you understand? Well, yes, I understand. Now, let me tell you something about how the tide actually runs through the Woods Hole Passage. The tide floods to the east, and it ebbs to the west. When the water is coming in, it flows into Vineyard Sound. When it is going out, it empties into Buzz's Bay. In between is about 20 minutes of slack water. When the tide begins to ebb, the current through the passage runs at about one-half knot and increases at about one-half knot per hour until sometime between the third and fourth hours when the current reaches its maximum velocity, which is about 4.1 knots, about five miles per hour. Not so fast when you consider that a person jogging can easily run five miles per hour. But think of the force of a whole body of water moving at this speed. Think of the force of all that water piled up into Vineyard Sound and trying to force its way out through a crooked channel 300 feet wide and 13 feet deep. Think of the marching force of several million tons of water trying to escape, and then you will understand what danger I was in. However, these were facts I was not privy to at the time. My world became engrossed in measuring the minute advance of the water, which now had climbed to the tops of my thighs, and in coping with the cold, for it was the cold that had become my chief torment. The burlap cloth I was wrapped in seemed to do some good, like a wetsuit in keeping a layer of warm water surrounding my legs. But whatever good it provided was offset by the cold metal of the buoy itself, which functioned like a siphon to drain away my body heat. Thank God this was the south side of the Cape where the ocean waters still feel the influence of the Gulf Stream. On the north side, my survival time might be measured in the space of a single hour, but over here... Over here, I could hold out much longer, with more chance of rescue. Or did it simply mean that my death would be that much worse for being drawn out? No. I still clung to the belief that this was only intended to frighten me. That the buoy would not go under. Or if it did, they would come back. Come back in time to take me off. They had to. They simply had to. I heard the sound of an approaching airplane coming from the west. I saw its wing lights blinking against the background of stationary stars. It's a measure of my desperation that I imagine that somehow they could see me. That the pilots sitting at the controls could somehow look down through the dark night and pick out this one buoy bobbing in the current and see that I was held prisoner. And he would radio for help. Radio for a boat to come out and pick me up. Save me! Save me! Save me! 
time passed. I lapsed once more into stupor. In my listlessness, I began to hallucinate. In the remnants of fog that drifted by glowing in the moonlight, I saw faces. I saw people. I saw a woman in a white dress go pirouetting across the surface. I saw a ferry boat, an actual ferry boat made out of fog, pass by so close I could look in the windows and see, actually see people sitting in their seats, staring straight ahead with blank expressions. I watched the moon continue its inexorable climb into the nighttime sky, passing from orange to pale yellow, yellow like the color of the leaves in the gutter. I experienced one moment of false hope when I thought I could detect... Yes. Yes, it was happening. The current was abating, the buoy coming more upright, lifting more of my body out of the water. But it was just one more thing I didn't know. That the tide runs out in stages in which it pulses and appears to slow down, even stop, before coming back again with renewed vigor. So long now I had been going back and forth between terror and hope that I thought I... I genuinely thought that nothing could happen to make me any more terrified. Then I looked down and noticed something floating in the water. Small bits of something white slipping by in the current. It wasn't. In the moonlight it looked like pieces of styrofoam. I... I couldn't quite make it out, nor could I think of what it could possibly be. Then suddenly the word shark came into my mind, and I knew instantly what it was. Chum. Someone up current of me was chumming the waters with blood and pieces of ground-up fish. Its purpose was to attract sharks. I swiveled my head. I tried to see behind, but so much of my vision was cut off. Anyway, I realized they could be doing this a long way off, and still the current would carry the scent down to me to lure them in my direction. Oh, yes, I had heard the rumors about the waters in this area. The word most often used in connection with sharks and the waters off Woods Hole was infested. Shark infested. I had heard how they liked to come and congregate in the slack waters inside Great Arbor, while they wait for the current in the passage to deliver up some juicy morsel. And obviously I was to be the juicy morsel. There was no longer any doubting their intentions. No point in deluding myself any longer that they were only trying to scare me or that they would be coming back to take me off. For the first time that night, I began to seriously believe that I was going to die. The fact that this was happening to me seemed so hideous, so monstrously unfair. What had I done to deserve this? I felt sad for myself. Sad that soon I would no longer know the world, and the world would no longer know me. I felt sorry for my family, for Rachel and Claudia, my wife and my daughter, who would never know what had happened to me. 
who would spend the rest of their lives wondering if I was still alive. I looked up at the stars spinning around with their magnificent indifference, and it occurred to me that perhaps the motive for my death had nothing to do with the waitress or the two men standing on the dock. Perhaps it was more impersonal than that. Perhaps it had only to do with the moon. The moon was my murderer. Raising my eyes to where the moon had risen, I saw the same bald-headed gentleman, a maniacal Mr. Peanut with his monocle in place and that terrible grin as he tipped his top hat towards me. And then I saw something that made me think for certain I was going mad. Watching the moon, I could swear that the top hat was coming back on. Before my eyes, I could see it. The top hat was being replaced. My, my mind reared back as if to scream. When suddenly, I was arrested by a sound. A boat approaching. A motorboat coming this way. It was at this very moment that I saw my first shark. A ten-footer running near the surface, traveling down the path of moonlight, heading directly toward the buoy, towards me. Until the last second when it, it veered away, showing me the flash of its eye, its frowning mouth, and the white of its underbelly. I wanted to scream at the top of my lungs so the boat would hear me. And yet I was afraid. Afraid that the sounds I would make would only encourage the shark to attack. But it didn't matter anyway. The sound that reached my ears told me that the boat was not heading for the passage. It was going into Great Harbor. Time passed into oblivion. And I became insensible to everything around me. It was as if I were already dead. It was only when the water reached my chest and I felt the icy grip around my heart that I came fully awake once more. The channel had become a torrent of rushing water, the surface buckling and churning all around me. The action of the buoy itself had become increasingly violent, a relentless pounding up and down as if I were strapped to the bow of a ship. Again and again I watched in horror as the water fell away from me and then came rushing back until it was only inches from my face. Staring down into it was like staring into an abyss. And then, from underwater, I felt a bump against my ribs. A shark. Another sound became apparent. A sound that my ears leapt to as if it was someone calling my name. Another boat coming this way. Yes, yes, not headed for the harbor, but coming this way. A sailboat, I thought. A large sailboat taking advantage of the current to make the passage through. But would he make it in time? The water was already so close to my face, I was forced to keep my chin up and my head to one side to keep my face from going under with each plunge forward. Suddenly, without warning, Another slip to the chain and I was under all the way. And then, just as suddenly we were up again and I was breathing. 
I tried to calculate how much longer before they arrived. Once inside the main channel, the passage would be swift. Navigating in the dead of night would not be easy. We spent there would be at least two of them. The captain at the wheel, someone else standing up at the bow, concentrating, keeping track of the buoys, making sure they stayed well inside them. Which meant, at some point, they would have to look directly at this buoy. But how much would they see? The buoy lying on its side with me underneath, with no more of my body visible than my head sticking above water? I wouldn't be visible to them at all until they were exactly alongside, and then only for an instant as they shot past. But what about the ropes? Would they see the ropes? The ropes must be visible from the other side. Would they see them and think it strange? Would they ask themselves what they were there for? I saw the beam of a searchlight sweep over the water in front of me and then hold on the buoy. An instant later, it was off. They had seen the buoy, but had they seen me? They were coming up now, moving very quickly. The light was on me again, then away. Did they see me? Did they see me? I could see the boat coming into view. I could see the bow. I saw a man standing with a searchlight. He wasn't looking. And then, for the last time that night, I went under. faces of people I had known. I saw a photograph, one I had taken years before. Summertime, the grass on the riverbank soaked yellow from the setting sun. Rachel sitting there, her knees drawn up and one hand raised to shield her eyes as she looks towards the photographer, me. And into the light, the light the light, the strong golden light.
breathe him. Breathe him. Breathe me. Come on, breathe. In the end, it was the cold that saved me. The cold, which had been my torment all night long, was the single factor that saved my life, causing me to hold my breath even after I had lost consciousness. To be called back like that, to be snatched from death and brought back to the world of the living was nothing less than a miracle of redemption. And yet, as it turned out, there was no easy way for me to resume living. I was marred by the nightmare of that experience I have never been the same since. Which is why tonight was the test. The chance to prove to myself that I have finally made the adjustment. That I have finally come to accept what happened to me. Because you see, tonight is the anniversary. Tonight... Celestial circumstances are exactly what they were 18 and one half years ago. Which is why I say, Mr. Hellpole, the body may survive, but it can take much longer for the spirit to recover. Your room is ready whenever you are, Mr. Hellpole. Mr. Hellpole? Mr. Hellpole? Uh, yes. Yes, yes. Oh, I was just listening to this man's most extraordinary account. What man is that, sir? Why, this man sitting right here. Now, where did he go? Where did who go? Why, the man who was sitting right here. You must have seen him. His name is Edward Walcott. I saw no one. But that's impossible. Why, he was sitting right here. You must have seen me talking to him. I saw you sitting. I saw you lean forward like you might be listening, but I didn't see you talking. But th that's not possible. He was here, in this chair. Why, we had brandy together. You had brandy? Yes, we both did. Well, you see for yourself. Only one glass has been used. <gasps> oh, now, this is God. strange. There's water on the floor in front of this well, chair. Wait a minute. What did you say? I said there's water on the floor no. in front of this chair. No, no, no. When you first came in. I said, your room is ready. My God. It was a warning. He said, tonight was the anniversary. It's ready for you now, upstairs. Mr. Halpole? Where are you going? Mr. Halpole? Mr. Halpole? You have been listening to Cape Cod Radio Mystery Theater's presentation of The Buoy. Tonight's program was produced, written, and directed by Stephen Tomasoni. Engineering by John Todd, Chip Davis, and Mark Birmingham. Original music and special sound processing by Mark Birmingham. The actors in tonight's play, opening monologue by Floyd Pratt. George McConville played Edward Walcott. Tom Dutton was Mr. Hal Cole. And Carol McManus played the innkeeper. This program was recorded at HT Recording Studio, Cape Cod, 
and at Rosemead Productions, Los Angeles. Special thanks to the Woods Hole Coast Guard Station, to Robert Eldridge White, publisher of Eldridge's Tide and Pilot Book, to Benthos, who provided the underwater hydrophones, and to the community of Woods Hole for so graciously allowing themselves to be maligned. This program is copyrighted by Stephen Tomasoni for Audio Artists Incorporated. All rights, including rights for broadcast and reproduction, are reserved. This is Floyd Pratt wishing you a pleasant evening and inviting you to tune in again when the fog rolls in on another chapter of Cape Cod Radio Mystery Theater. All right, and that was The buoy by the Cape Cod Radio Mystery Theater. Hope you enjoyed that. Um, of course, Halloween's kind of a tradition here in Radio Drum Revival. Hundreds of other hours of archives at RadioDrumRevival.com. Um, if you go to the website and dig under the horror archives, you can find uh, much, much more good stuff there. Um, all sorts of people come to mind. Roger Gregg's done a lot of spooky stuff. Uh, the Ghost of Rena Screen, The Lighthouse, is another fun one, sort of in this vein. He's sort of a Blair Witch set in a lighthouse in Ireland. Um, and things go horribly wrong, as they are want to do. Um, uh, you can find us on iTunes or Stitcher. Search for Radio Drum Revival. Um, we're also on SoundCloud. Going to start be building that out. Start building some uh, sort of best of uh, uh, by genre uh, playlists there. So we'll keep you in tuned for that as it develops. And, of course, um, find us on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Radio Drum Revival. Or on Twitter, search at Radio Drama. All right, that's a wrap for this week. Radio Drum Revival is produced by yours truly, Fred Greenhall. Copyrighted individual shows, reigns that are original producers, but do please share this show as far and widely as you like. As always, thanks for tuning in, and have a great week. Mm-hmm.